Grapes are very sensitive to growing season weather. And we distinguish climate as sort of the long-term outcome of weather. And, and the weather itself is sort of changes from year to year. We're already seeing some quite remarkable things happening. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us Orly Ashenfelter, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In his truly remarkable career, he has served as the president of the American Economic Association, the American Law and Economics Association, and the Society of Labor Economics. And in addition to that, he was the editor of the American Economic Review for an astounding 16 years. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and a distinguished fellow of the American Economic Association, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Econometric Society. Although he is very well known for his extensive research and writing in labor economics, econometrics, and law and economics, for those of us who are wine aficionados, he is celebrated for his pioneering work on the economics of wine. So in addition to all of those previous positions I just mentioned, for purposes of today's conversation, it's important for me to note that he is also the current president of the American Association of Wine Economists and my fellow co-editor at the Journal of Wine Economics. Orly, welcome. Great pleasure to be here. I wish my mother could have heard your introduction. So uh, before we talk about your research and your current thinking about wine economics, including but, but not limited to the relationship between global climate change, grape growing, and wine production, I'd like to go back, as we always do in these podcasts, to how you came to be where you are. So, so Orly, where did you grow up? Uh, I'm actually from a working class. Uh, I, well, I was born in San Francisco, but I grew up in uh, National City, California, which is just south of San Diego. It is mm -hmm. actually north of the Mexican border, working class town. And is that where you went to primary school and high school? Uh, I spent a little time in North Dakota as a child, but yes, mainly uh, high school and primary and middle school were spent in, uh, in lovely old Sweetwater Union High School, home to many long, long history of immigrants. And then um, you went to college also in Southern California at Claremont McKenna. Is that right? Yes. It was actually called Claremont Men's College back in those days. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you, you graduated. Did you go directly on to graduate school at Princeton? I did. You did. And there you uh, received a PhD in economics. So what was your dissertation topic and who was on your dissertation committee? Someone asked me about this the other day. It'll sound incredibly modern. I wrote on the economics of discrimination. Really? Okay. Yeah, three uh, three essays. One of which actually is one of my very favorite papers. It's a paper that uh, you rarely write a paper like this. A paper that kills a subject. In other words, it was a finding, and the finding was substantial enough that there really never was any further research. It was on the effect of uh, trade unions on uh, racial income differences. Oh, interesting. Um, 
and it involved measuring the effect of being in a union on the wage rates of black workers and white workers, but also more importantly, uh, measured the fraction of people that were in unions that were black and the fraction of people who were white. At the time I wrote that, that was not known. So there were many arguments over a simple fact. All you had to do was count in principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a very satisfying, uh, turns out that the fraction of black workers unionized is about the same as fraction of white workers at that time. And so there was, if anything, evidence that uh, trade unions probably narrowed wage gaps. Uh, and um, that, that more or less brought that subject to a close. As far as I know, no one ever wrote about it again. That's interesting. And who was on your committee, your dissertation committee? Well, it would have been um, Albert Reese, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, came to Princeton late from Chicago, uh, Steve Goldfeld, um, and, uh, uh, and probably Dick Quant, mm-hmm. uh, three to a couple of econometricians and a labor economist. Right. And then for your first job out of graduate school, was that indeed as an assistant professor of economics at Princeton? Yeah, something we would never do today, I don't think. But yeah, I, I uh, the department, it's interesting, there's a little history here. It, Princeton didn't really have an economics department until about 1960. Uh, it was at that time, the Department of Economics and Sociology, and the university uh-huh. decided to finally try to compete with Harvard and have an actual economics department and attracted, uh, well, a, a lot of very famous people, Dick Musgrave, Fritz mm-hmm. Mocklop, Arthur Lewis, some others, mm-hmm. uh, and started up the department. Uh, so it was a kind of an, a very unusual moment, really, uh, when uh, I was hired. And, and something that you and I have in common is that uh, the institution where we did our PhD uh, we became an assistant professor, and then we never left, except, I guess, for government service and sabbaticals. That's correct of you, isn't it? Or It is, yes. Yeah. So you voted with your feet. You love Princeton. <laughs> well, I had a, a, a special arrangement, this industrial relations section, mm-hmm. uh, which has spawned so many wonderful graduate students over the years, and so much research was a sort of a, a, a very special place. Uh, and the economics department was always very welcoming. So, but it was growing. You know, it was a unusual. I was in the right place at the right time. You might uh-huh. say. When I speak with people in these podcasts, over and over again, that concept comes up <laughs> that they happen to be in the right place at the right time. And I would say that also about myself. As so much of life, indeed, are coincidences <laughs> of just showing up, as someone once said. So before we turn to the relationship between climate change and the wine industry, what I would really love, Orly, would be if you could share with our listeners your really path-breaking and at one time controversial work in which you would predict the quality of specific vintages of wine, such as the 1982 vintage of Bordeaux, for example, without ever tasting the wine via early barrel samples as a wine critic like Robert Parker might do. Can you explain that, please? Actually, even the best uh, wine writers, um, historically, they're British, um, they used the weather that produced the grapes as a pretty good guess as to what the overall quality of the vintage was going to be. Mm -hmm. But what I did was to quantify it. I uh, 
I, I, I read a book by Edmund Penning Rosal on Bordeaux wine. I met him actually, I stayed with him once. It's a very interesting man. He was the wine writer for the financial times and almost a, I wouldn't say a communist, but certainly very left of center. I always asked him what, what in the world he was doing writing for the financial times about wine. <laughs> and his answer was always, we can't let the Tories drink all the good wine. We have to have some of it for ourselves. He had collected some data and um, he kind of had an insight uh, in an appendix to his book. And I read it and then learned a little bit about grapes and realized that uh, you could probably predict the wine uh, quality. But the special breakthrough that I found was in England at that time, especially the older wines were sold at, at public auction. Mm-hmm. So you actually had a, a measure, a quantitative measure of what, after a decade had passed, the quality of the wines uh, was thought to be because these prices reflected that. And then I basically set out a simple uh, model. It, it turns out it's a nice model and people use it a lot because it's the weather that determines the prices and no one has any concern about causation running the other direction. So this is a very simple example of causality. Um, and uh, it really, it's about, most farmers would know this too. It, 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 you, you need to get the grapes ripe. So that typically means a, a warm summer. Mm-hmm. Um, grapes are very sensitive to rainfall. So you, you don't want rainfall at the end of the growing season. Uh, and then unless you irrigate, you'd like to have a lot of uh, rainfall in the winter to bring the water table up. It's important to remember gra- grapes really come from the Middle East and they're, they can grow where people can grow. They don't need much water uh, once they've gone down far enough. So those three things kind of tell you uh, what the quality potential is. And then, of course, the, the reason that people would go, especially the Brits, would go and sample the wines was because uh, not all winemakers do a great job. And uh, there could be a flaw that occurred. And there are many, many ways that wine can be flawed. Um, so many chemical problems that can occur. So they would then sample them. And in fact, in the old days, the Brits would often buy the wine in cask and barrel it in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, and bottle it in England because they didn't, right. they of course didn't trust the French to <laughs> to, bottle, to bottle the same wine that they had selected. <laughs> right. Now, you know, the, the most climate sensitive sector of virtually any national economy is agriculture. And as you just noted, of the many agricultural crops, surely one of the most sensitive to the climate is grape production, both in terms of uh, temperature, precipitation, humidity, particularly for premium wines. Now, the impacts are going to be different for different wine producing regions. Can you comment on the implications of anticipated climate change or perhaps a climate change already being experienced for some specific areas? I mean, Bordeaux in France, Napa Valley in California. I know you've done work with Carl Storchman on the uh, along the Rhine in Germany, any 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 particular uh, findings from that all of that work? The, it, it is it's a fascinating, uh, and you put it just right. Grapes are very sensitive to growing season weather, and we distinguish climate as sort of the long term outcome of weather, and and the weather itself is sort of changes from year to year. We're already seeing some quite remarkable 
things happening. I'll come back to this, but broadly speaking, uh, grapes are also adaptable. So people typically plant the grapes that are most suited for their climate in the area that they are. And this, by the way, uh, it covers, goes all the way from Minnesota, where grapes like the Marquette, the front neck have been hybridized so they can stand the cold winters, just like the people can stand them, mm-hmm. uh, all the way to uh, Greece, where uh, the grapes are almost impossible to ripen if you're not in a remarkably hot climate. Right now, we're seeing a few things happen. Um, some people are very concerned about adaptation. They, they're already thinking about what grapes they might want to change to. But the first round effects of climate change, I think, uh, as we've seen it, and I noticed it first of all, Rob, in the data that I collect on Bordeaux, mm-hmm. um, after 1980, there's literally not a year in which temperatures drop back into the levels they were in the summers of the 1960s and 70s. So the primary effect in Bordeaux has been much warmer summers, and the primary effect of that has been much better wines. So the Bordelais have really become much tougher competitors against the the uh, California folks who Interesting. Um, have the warm weather already going for them. So, and this you can see it in, in the wealth of the neighborhoods. Uh, Germany is the same way. Uh, they they grow grapes at you know fifty degree latitude and very difficult to do. Instead of getting three out of ten good vintages, now they can get seven or eight uh, good vintages out of ten. And you can see it in the prosperity of the farmers. I mean, they have better equipment. Uh, they've actually, the other place where I've noticed it is in the northern part of Italy, in mm-hmm. the Piedmont region, which is also very sensitive uh, to cooler summers. And there again, you can see the prosperity. Uh, they're, getting, they're getting more wine uh, at high quality. Um, now, the problem, of course, is that some places are already too hot. And you can see the adaptation going on, say, in Greece, uh, where what people are trying to do is to grow grapes at higher elevations. Mm-hmm. Uh, higher elevations get you a little cooler. Uh, in Spain, there's deep concern about it. Uh, the Taurus family has bought a lot of property in the mountains of Catalonia, mm-hmm. preparing for the possibility that they may have to grow grapes at much higher elevations if they want to keep growing the same grapes they have grown. What you do see is a little incursion of some of these hybridized grapes. So uh, I just happened to notice uh, Eric Asimov's column. Uh, you may have seen it uh, last, I think it was last Wednesday. And it was about 12 grapes you ought to know about that you never heard of, mm-hmm. one of which is called Frontenac. Uh, and the winemaker, uh, believe it or not, the winery, La, La Gargiste, is in Vermont. So that's a that's a breakthrough for Vermont. No, right. who, would ever, who would ever have thought? Now, I would think that one advantage in the face of climate change for the New World wines, including the United States, compared to the Old World wines from Europe, is that if it gets warmer and you're producing Cabernet in the Napa Valley on the valley floor, you can go up the hillside to the cooler areas, or you can change grapes, as you mentioned But if you're in Europe and you're producing some of the super premium wines, I'll take Romani Conti as the extreme example of that in Burgundy, 
Um, they can't change grape because of the AOC system. And for that matter, if they just go across the road, it's no longer Romani Conti because it's tied to the property. So what's going to happen to these super premium wines that, you know, are produced on, you know, one and a half hectares or something in right. Burgundy yeah. or for that matter in Pauillac? There are grapes that were grown in Burgundy that have kind of died out like Alagote. Mm -hmm. It used mm -hmm. to be so acidic. You know, it was this famous drink, the cure. Where yeah. you dump creme de cassis and some, you have to have very acidic white wine. Yeah. Well, Aligote is coming back. <laughs> it's not as acidic as it used to be. Interesting. Uh, and people are drinking it. But I do think uh, the, the ability, you really bring up a good point. The, the ability to be able uh, to adapt is in some places going to be uh, restricted by government regulations. And it mm -hmm. may just be that over time, there'll have to be some. Uh, relaxation of those regulations, um, as there has been, for example, in Italy, mm -hmm. um, that may just be necessary for that. The Americans are much more loose about this, right? We mm -hmm. don't, we don't, we, we use place names, but we don't, we don't have any requirement mm -hmm. that a certain grape be grown in a certain place, or it may be customary. Right. Now, now, climate change is actually good news for wine production from some areas. I think of uh, Method Champenois is now being produced, I think, very successfully in the United Kingdom. No, it is. Yes. In fact, they'll be able to they'll be able to grow Chardonnay grapes. You know, the nice thing about Champagne, it's so interesting. It's really a way. It's a method, a technology mm -hmm. for dealing right. with unripe Chardonnay. Uh, yes. <laughs> and if you get the Chardonnay too ripe, you don't get good Chard uh, champagne. Yeah. So, yes, the, the Brits have, have I think, managed. I've tasted some of their wines, and they can be very, very good. Uh, there are a lot of bad things about climate change. I don't want to leave it. Uh, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that happens in California occasionally are these heat spikes. Mm-hmm. Um, grapes do not do well above 95 degrees and they don't do well below 55 degrees. These 105 degree heat spikes, uh, unless you just throw water at the plant, the plant will actually suck the juice right out of the grapes and leave you with nothing. I see. So the heat spikes, I think what the, the danger of climate change for many locations is going to be these highly unpredictable specialized situations. Um, we had one last year in the Pacific Northwest, which is now famous, at least in Oregon, uh, on the, in, the, in the western side of, of, of the state yeah. for growing uh, Pinot Noir. But they had this huge uh, heat wave in Pacific Northwest. I don't know what it did to the grapes, but I'm guessing they had to pick early and they may have grapes and, and wines that are not typical. Uh, now, why that happened, it didn't happen in Southern California. Normally, normally a heat spike uh, on the coast in the Pacific will go up, travel up and down the entire coast. But it didn't happen in Southern California. It really just happened in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. So there are these highly unpredictable, uh, 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 I would say, outbreaks of situations uh, where you end up with uh, – problems not of your own making. The other thing that can happen is we see this, I have a small vineyard in New Jersey. Um, there, what we worry about, what we worry about, our, farmers worry about all this. You have to worry about everything. There's nothing, nothing is simple. Everything is complicated. <laughs> Mother nature, you never know what she's going to do. Um, but my, one of my greatest fears is when the Canadians get angry and they send the polar vortex down to us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the polar vortex 
will just kill the vines if it goes, if it really gets really, you go down to minus five Fahrenheit for length of time and you'll just kill off the whole thing. A vine takes five years to mature. So it's extremely costly when you get these giant super cold spells. And we've seen them happen in places where no one really would have expected them in the past. I don't know how much that is climate change uh, or how much it is something else. Now, I've often heard it said that uh, grapes for wine production are now produced in all 50 states. Does that include Alaska? <laughs> you know, it, North Dakota is my favorite. Uh, they, they don't actually necessarily grow grapes, although they may grow these hybridized, these, these Frontenac uh -huh. and Marquette. They can survive a winter in, in Minnesota, so they can probably survive a, a winter in North Dakota. Uh, I think there'll be places in Alaska, too. But a lot of times there, there's a little winery in North Dakota. They have a website. Mm -hmm. Look it up sometime. It's very funny. It says it basically promises that any farmer who grows fruit in North Dakota and brings it to the winery, they'll make it into wine. I see. So it isn't always grapes. <laughs> oh, so it's not always grapes. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, they're famous for their dandelion wine. <laughs> dandelion wine. Yeah. Yes. Sounds good. I'll try it sometime. Uh, now, so you've been observing um, the wine industry and enjoying fine wines for, for decades. You've seen some significant changes. What are the one or two changes that stand out in your mind over the long haul from when you first got really seriously interested in wine until today? You know, I, I think the biggest single change is the minimum standard for winemaking. Mm -hmm. uh, a winemaker is like a chef. You know, you basically wine is you take raw materials, you have a recipe and you make a product. Uh, if you get the recipe right and you have a competent winemaker, uh, the grapes are really put the limit on what you can produce. Uh, what, what I've noticed is it used to be that uh, I, this is a very important thing for people to understand. When, when you go to a North Carolina, I just learned today about a guy who's using this system where you dry out grapes that mm -hmm. they do in the Verona region. Right. That's done for Amarone. That guy is mm -hmm. doing that in, in North Carolina. Hmm. Uh, I've tasted good uh, hybridized wines uh, from Florida. Mm -hmm. something called the Stover Reserve. Uh, what has surprised me is that uh, minimum standard for winemaking has really become much higher than it was in the past. I think this can be credited to not, not just UC Davis, which is often you know, credited as the great winemaker place, but uh, a lot of these winemakers come from Australia. There's a very famous winemaking school in Australia. Uh, but even a place like Penn State, has a, a very high quality or, or Virginia Tech. They have high quality uh, uh, facilities for which, where people can learn how to actually produce these grapes. So in a way, it's a little bit like cooking. Uh, the, the minimum standard for winemaking, I think, has broadened and you can, you can see it in places that you would never have seen it in the past. So I like to think we'll get the locavore program can become more, much broader. Mm -hmm. I think that, and so that, they, that kind of goes together, mm -hmm. uh, the, the minimum standard uh, for being able to produce these wines kind of goes with the local water. You, you can have, I, I, I grow these grapes in New Jersey, but I'm not having any trouble selling them this year. There's clearly deep interest in it. Uh, you, see, you see a lot of breweries that have now been established 
Um, Hamilton, New Jersey, where near where my vineyard has it also has a distillery. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're all kind of uh, interested in local things, and I think that's partly because people know how to do it. And there was at one time it would have been uh, you know Uncle Jack's uh, rot gut would not have been satisfactory. <laughs> <laughs> that's a perfect place on which to end our conversation. I want to urge uh, listeners that if you're interested in economics, and I think virtually everyone follows this blog is, and you're interested or have become interested from listening to the Dean of Wine Economists, Orly Ashenfelter, in wine and economics, then check out the website of the Journal of Wine Economics or become a member of the American Association of Wine Economists. There is a whole world. Um, I'm astounded uh, sometimes by the breadth of the articles that appear in the journal. There is just so much to look at from an economic perspective on wine production and wine consumption. It's marvelous. So, Orly, thank you very much for having taken time to join us today. My pleasure. And uh, and don't forget the, the book reviews, which Rob edits in the Journal of Wine Economics. Oh, thank you, Orly. So our guest today has been Orly Ashenfelter, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University, and as I said, the absolute dean of wine economics in the world. Uh, Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.